Okay, so it is October 3rd, 2012, and uh, our message is called Into All Truth. Uh, we're going to talk about the baptism in the Holy Ghost and the gifts of the Spirit. It's a Wednesday night, and uh, our time is, is, we will handle it as best as we can. This is a big topic. For some people, it's a controversial topic. For me, I, I find it just to be, uh, just to be Bible. So I want to share that with you. Uh, let's start with the, uh, the attitude that I'm not beholden to any denomination. And I, I hope that you're not beholden to any denomination. The scripture actually says in 1 Corinthians 1, this starts verse 11. My brother, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says I follow Paul. Another I follow Apollos. Another I follow Cephas. Still another I follow Christ. You could insert any denomination names in here, and this will fit the context of the Scripture. And he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I will not fight denominational battles. I don't like the denominations enough to do that. Uh, my real hope is that people don't see us as Baptist or Pentecostal or Charismatic. I want them to see us as Christians. This is my whole heart's desire. And... Uh, it's, it's worth saying that 1 Corinthians 3.1 says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. Well, praise God, at least they made it into Christ, but I don't think he's complimenting them. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. What was the sign of their worldliness? For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? It is a childish, carnal thing for us to break into sectarian groups and then claim that one group is better than another. Now, it's also human nature. Apparently, human nature is childish and carnal. But we're called to be something more than that. So tonight is not a, a message about my high school is better than yours, or my political party is better than yours. My heart's desire is that we could unearth the truth of the Word as best as we see it and experience it. And I want to tell you up front, all I can do is share with you the way I've experienced it. I'm not saying that it's the only way. I'm not saying that it's the perfect way. I'm telling you this is the best revelation that the Lord gave me. Is that fair? Amen. There's diversity in the body. Uh, there's diversity as far as our kind of gifting. There's diversity as far as um, our backgrounds. There's diversity as far as our occupations. And I just want to say right off the top that I find many fine things uh, in the Baptist church. I came out of it. That's where my roots were. The vice president of the Southern Baptist Convention married my wife and I. I mean, he performed the ceremony in 1993. David Platt is a hero of mine. He's firmly within the Baptist circle. Paul Washer, another hero of mine. John Piper, another man that I admire. All of these men consider themselves Baptist, and yet I can identify with them and Christ in them without having to wear their denominational title. I find many things in the charismatic movement. I say movement because there's really no such thing as a charismatic denomination. In fact, uh, that renewal time period is so, so new in our country that all of them came from other denominations. When you think of somebody like Dennis Bennett, who wrote the book 9 o'clock in the morning, he, he started his ministry and finished his ministry as an Episcopalian. When you think of John Wimber, nobody knew what to do with John Wimber, so he created the Vineyard denomination. 
And today, people will fight and die for the vineyard denomination, but it didn't exist before he began it. You know, what I remember about John Wimber is he introduced the Righteous Brothers to each other. You know, they were childhood friends. Bill Medley and, I mean, y'all don't care about that. David Wilkerson. David Wilkerson, non-denominational, but people would swear up and down, he is charismatic. Well, these are terms that are applied to people, but they didn't necessarily ask for that. I find many things of the Pentecostal movement. When you look at a guy like William Seymour, but he didn't call himself Pentecostal. That happened much later. You look at a guy like Smith Wigglesworth or John G. Lake. Most of my heroes, by the way, and I hope most of your heroes, are not nearly as associated with some organization by men as they are with Christ. And, and I'm not saying that any organization's wrong. If you just love the Salvation Army, then praise God. If you just absolutely love uh, your Baptist heritage, or we place no requirements of you uh, regarding any of those things. Our heart's desire is that your attachment is to Jesus. And I just wanted to mention that there's room for that. Some people call us independent or non-denominational. I don't really know what to call us. Again, I want to be called Christian. But... I don't have an axe to grind. The, the point here for me is when I teach what I'm going to teach, it's not to protect some Pentecostal heritage. It's not to protect some charismatic heritage. It's not to fight for established doctrine of the Baptist church, even if I know it to be wrong. Too many times in my life I have seen people admit out loud that they do not adhere to a tenet of their denominational creed, and yet they can't say so out loud or voice it in church. Uh, I know more Catholic folks that don't believe the Pope speaks ex cathedra. They simply don't accept it at all. More Baptist folks that do not believe uh, in any way, shape, or form that it's wrong to dance with their wife in their living room. I, I mean, but these are tenets of, of these denominations. I want to get beyond those things and have a, a tenacious pursuit of the truth without regard to how everybody else has felt about it. That doesn't mean that I don't love them. I just want the Scripture. We don't refuse these kind of descriptors for a reason. If it helps you to understand me, to call me Baptist or Methodist or Pentecostal, then praise God. But please don't expect the ministry in any way, shape, or form to conform to the use of that descriptor. In other words, when you call me charismatic, when you call Matthew Pentecostal, whatever you might call us, that brings to mind all kind of things that may or may not be true about Matthew. Or me. These are not terms that we chose for ourselves. They're simply things people began to say. Lastly, we, we want to tell you we openly work with people that we disagree with. Right? I don't require you to believe what I believe about eschatology to work with you. I do not require you to believe on disputable matters what I believe. It is not uh, required for acceptance. It's not required for membership. It's not required for us to love each other. It is required that we be on the same page about the deity of Jesus, about salvation issues. I believe that God is bigger than He's been made out to be. I actually think He will work this out in your life. So let's talk pressure for just a second. When you come into a church, you feel a certain pressure when everybody feels a certain way and you maybe don't. We make no requirement of you to speak in other tongues in this place or any other manifestation. We simply say hunger for God with all of your heart and please don't place requirements on us because you're uncomfortable if it fits within the scripture. 
We eagerly desire the spiritual gifts because Corinthians 14.1 says blatantly, eagerly desire the gifts. We will not tear that passage out to be more businesslike, to be more comfortable. Our experiences led us to the conclusion that your hunger for God will lead you in the direction that's appropriate for your life. We believe that. We think if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll find it. So I don't feel a particular burden for you to find it on a schedule that's pleasing to me. I simply want to encourage you to hunger for the Lord. I want to use a small example just for a second, then we're going to hop right into the Scripture. You may or may not desire to swim, right? A lot of people in this world never learn to swim. I'm personally driven to make sure that people swim. I don't know why. It bothers me to think you might be around water and you couldn't swim. So if you and I are going to hang out by the pool, it's not that I require for you to swim to be my friend in the church or anything. It is a friend's desire for you to know how to do everything that you can. You will never learn to swim from a man who has never swam, right? It's just not going to happen. If you want to swim, you better hang around those who know how to swim. So sometimes when we are pursuing the things of the Spirit, we need to understand if somebody's made the decision to reject the things of the Spirit, they're probably not the people to go learn it from. He said, well, why does everybody in that church know how to swim? Because they wanted to learn, friend. That's why they're there. That's like saying, why does everybody in swim class know how to swim? I don't want to use any more human examples. I'm just telling you, for some reason, we kind of flock together when we're pursuing certain things, when we're hungry for God in certain areas. And what happens is, if Matthew knows how to make fire, he shares it with everybody he knows, and pretty soon, we all know how to make fire. Right? But if we're taught that nobody knows how to swim, that it stopped, and you believe that, probably nobody's going to learn. So this is why we have some groups that figuratively swim and others that, that don't. I want you to experience some relief as we move into this. I want to say right up front, out in the open, every true believer has the Spirit of God living in them. Romans 8, 9 says that as clear as day. Uh, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ in you, then you don't belong to Christ. But if the Spirit of God is living in you, you belong to Christ. This is a paraphrase of Romans 8, 9. I did not join any United Pentecostal camp for a big reason. I was in love with the Lord and filled with His Spirit before I spoke in other tongues. There is no question in my life that that's the case. There's no question in my wife's life that that is the case. You can make a convincing argument for United Pentecostal doctrine, but it's just an argument. It does not fit my experience. So I will not do that. Uh, I'm not asking you to do anything differently than your experience with the Scripture teaches you, but it is the position of this church that all believers have the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. That is not at question. With that said, we have nomenclature issues. In the charismatic movement, in the Pentecostal movement, and in common speech... An additional experience or many additional experiences with the Holy Spirit is sometimes called receiving the Spirit. This does not mean that they're saying you didn't have the Spirit before. It simply is the terminology that has become commonplace. But the first time somebody looked at me and said, you just need the Holy Spirit, I thought they were saying I wasn't a Christian. And that terminology separated us. What would be more accurate to, for him to have said to me was... Brother, I think there are more experiences you can have with the Holy Ghost and I want to invite you to hunger for them. But he didn't know that the terminology separated us. 
Sometimes followers of Paul, followers of Peter, and followers of Apollos are simply fighting over their nomenclature. Let's try to be bigger than that tonight. Is that fair enough? Yes. I'm not talking in terms of excluding people. I'm not talking in terms of first class and second class Christians or any other ridiculous carnal thing. The heart of this ministry, and I think the heart of Jesus, is to see people equipped and empowered on an ongoing, continual basis, not a one-time thing. I take that from Ephesians 4.12, where the fivefold ministry is told to equip the body for works of service, and Acts 1.8, where we're told, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will receive power. I believe that these things are true, and so we work towards them every day. Every day. I was as serious as a heart attack when I spoke to people that have experienced a baptism in the Holy Ghost within the church, some have, some haven't, and said, it is not enough that you speak in other tongues. It's not. It's not enough that at one time you prophesied. It's not enough that at one time you were healed. We are looking for an ongoing, tenacious, I would even say voracious appetite for all things of God, not for simply coasting. So I meant that when I said it Sunday. I still mean it today. This does not mean that I'm looking at any of you and going, hey, is there a check mark that uh, I can put in the box to know where you fall in it? That's not my heart at all. I want you to, to search for God in all of the ways that you're able to. And that might look differently than it does in my life. That's okay with me. Let's go to Ephesians 1. You'll see it on the screen here. If you can't read it, then turn in your Bible to it. Ephesians 1 uses the word seal and deposit. This comes in the 13th verse. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. That seal is like ownership, friends. It's like a maker's tag. The work that is being done in the believer is from the Holy Ghost, the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. This has been quoted many times and because a deposit can be something that is a one-time given and then uh, maybe you get it back later, I think it's been misunderstood. The, the question to be asked is what kind of guarantee is he talking about? I would like to liken the guarantee to a GPS system. If we put in the GPS that we're going to name a city, somebody speak, Boston. If we name that we're going to Boston, you put it in the GPS, the GPS will absolutely guarantee that you get to Boston if you obey it. If you do not obey it, then the possession of that GPS in no way guarantees that you get to Boston. The Holy Spirit is like this in our lives. When we listen to His voice, He will get you where God wants you to go. He is a deposit guaranteeing that you've tasted of heaven and are headed that way. I think Romans 8.14 says it. Because those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God, not those who one time experienced the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Verse 16 says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I do not need a doctrine to assure me. I don't need another man to assure me. In fact, I think the assurances of men and the doctrines that they have created have been a substitute for the assurance of the Holy Spirit. If I convince Brent that he is purple, and I talk to him all day long and say, Brother, it's been written in stone for a hundred years, you're purple. See, Fred, I'm trying to make him an LSU fan, right? 
He's purple. He's purple. He's purple. What happens when he begins to doubt that he's purple? All I can ever do is point back to the doctrine that says it. The doctrine. And, and then, what if it's kind of scant in the word? What if the word doesn't actually say it's purple? It just says purple is a color, right? Because this is what some of the doctrines that are floated around are like. They teach that salvation is possible. Salvation is there. You see it in the word. Salvation, salvation, salvation. They never teach that salvation is a prison to hold you in for all time that you cannot escape from or, or walk away from. These are the inventions of men to keep you from having to do something. Get close enough with the voice of the Spirit that you feel Him telling you, you're mine. You belong to me. And you know what? There is no substitute for that. There's a man that I, I'm growing in my relationship with. I already admire him. And one of the things that he said to me here recently was, you know, really for the first time in my life, I mean, I've loved the Lord for a long time, but for the first time in my life, my wife was out of town. And I found myself hungry and wanting to go pray. I, want, I just wanted to get closer to Jesus. This is the kind of way that the Spirit speaks to your spirit and says, you belong to me, and I'm calling you further. I'm calling you further. We do need to question ourselves when we have no hunger, no appetite for the things of God. When we would rather sit and do something else, we need to question that and shame on any church, any doctrine, anything that is meant to remove that conviction of the Holy Ghost or that assurance of the Holy Ghost. This is his role. Jesus said he would convict the world of sin. And then he, Paul said he's the spirit of sonship by which we call Abba Father. If his spirit is in you testifying with you, you do not need a man to reaffirm you that you belong to God. The spirit of God is in you to do it. I want to tell you, keep drinking. Keep drinking, keep drinking, keep drinking. All Christians have the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life or they're not Christians. But Ephesians 5.18 says it this way. Do not get drunk on wine. It's funny you've got to say that uh, to Christians. It's even funnier that we could argue about whether or not this is really wine. Do not get drunk on grape juice. You know, I don't know when we decided we could reinterpret the word, but somewhere along the way to fit a doctrinal stance of a denomination that maybe was reacting to the Prohibition era, uh, we decided to change parts of the word. I'm simply saying that that's unacceptable, no matter who does it. Whether they're Catholic, whether they're Baptist, or whether they're Pentecostal, if you find it, you need to decide whether or not you will follow the Scripture or the teachings of men, and it's always been this way. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. He wrote this to Christians. He wrote this to Christians who had been blessed in the heavenly realms. Christians who were said to be seated with Christ at the right hand of God in Ephesians 2. Christians who were moved and filled and empowered by the Holy Ghost. I, I went ahead and put it on the screen so you wouldn't think it was for me. This is West's Word Study uh, from the Greek New Testament. It's been around as long as from 1940 to 1955 when it was first copyrighted. Uh, Erdman's Publishing... Uh, a major Christian publisher is, is the one who puts it out there. It is standard in almost every seminary you'll ever go to that it's a book in the library. And they say, this is their quote, the verb is in the present imperative. And then in quotes, be constantly being filled with the Spirit. The proper interpretation is be constantly moment by moment 
be being controlled by the Spirit. Guys, this does not sound like a one-time event. It sounds like an ongoing relationship forever. And I just want to tell you, whether they meant to or not, I've not found a denomination that is actually encouraging this Spirit-filled or otherwise. They are encouraging an event at an altar. But this is what Paul encouraged. To be drinking daily, never resting, never saying, oh, I did that back then. But every day, deeply yearning for the Spirit's work in your life. I say keep drinking. Is it okay if we walk through the Gospels now? Yeah. I'm trying to cover lots of ground with you quickly. you got children, you got work tomorrow, all of those things. And yet, I feel in my spirit like there's not much that could be more important than to give you the scriptural rationale for why we do some of the things we do. I could just simply say, we're right, accept it. But where would that leave us in the end? I don't feel that way. In fact, many times being challenged on something that you didn't understand, something that you thought was right, and maybe now that it's being challenged, have to rethink. This is how growth occurs. If you're never changing your mind about anything, you are not growing. Yeah? If the moment you were born again, you could be handed a piece of paper that tells you everything you needed to know about God, why do you even have a Bible? Yeah? Why do we camp on men's revelation from hundreds of years ago when we are having a living, breathing, active, living Word of God, sharper than any double-edged sword? It's enduring, Peter said. I want to, to embrace all of the Word. Starting in John 4, this comes from the 23rd verse. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. It's interesting, Jesus uses this phrase several times. A time is coming, and then it's as if while he's speaking, he's saying, and it has now come. In other words, he was initiating it. Uh, will come worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. The Father is seeking something. Uh, Chronicle says his eyes are ranging throughout the earth looking for those whose hearts are fully committed to him that he might strengthen them. He is seeking people who worship him in spirit and in truth. Guys, there are a lot of ways you could look at that verse, but let's just for argument's sake say it is possible to read that. Those who worship him in a spiritual way and an intellectual way. I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. I actually think that you can have a sound mind and be led by the Spirit. But let's just be honest. Do you think many people's Christianity is merely intellectual? In my life, for many years it was. It's a fight now. It's a fight now to be moved by the presence of God, by the witness of His Spirit, rather than just my own intellect. And sometimes those two things are at odds. But the Father is seeking people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Look at verse 24. God is spirit. Wow, that's interesting, isn't it? God is spirit and His worshipers must worship Him in spirit and in truth. He doesn't say they can choose to. He doesn't say uh, it's an elective option. He doesn't say if it's not too undignified, if it doesn't upset your apple cart too much. Jesus Himself said His worshipers must worship Him. In other words, there's only one kind He's seeking, and there's only one kind He'll accept. Those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. How important do you think it is, then, that we strive in all of those areas? 
You know, we can relax and just say, well, we all believe the right things. That's nowhere in this verse. Now, you may be in truth well enough, but is your spirit connected to His? He is a spirit. And our spirit must connect to His in some way. Let's go to the second step in John, if we will. This will come from uh, John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is the work of the Father, by the way, and the Father is the Spirit. And another way to say this, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. They're spoken of interchangeably. Did anybody have God the Father show up in your house inside like you would become a Christian? No, that... God can't be seen. He is spirit and he cannot be seen. Jesus is the visible representation of an invisible God. The way that the Father draws you is by his Ruach HaKodesh, his Holy Spirit. And what happens is in our lives, we begin feeling his nudging, his prodding. Sometimes we kick against it, uh, i.e. enter uh, the Apostle Paul, kicking against the goats. He pokes you, he prods you, he encourages you. And when we respond to this, we are responding to the Father because we're responding to His Spirit. In John 7, Jesus says it this way. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He is not concerned with those who are not thirsty, not concerned with those who will not worship in spirit and truth. He is seeking those who are thirsty. Those who want all of God there is to have, not just the acceptable portion. Anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. At this point, three years into Jesus' ministry, they did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling in a way that they would have later. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. What does it seem like is a prerequisite for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Jesus had to finish His work. Is there anybody in here that strongly disagrees with that? Well, amen, then we'll move on from it. Watch how this works. The Father wants worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will draw you to the Father. Drinking of Jesus would mean that living water would flow from within you. The Spirit was not given until Jesus was glorified. Let's go to John 14. In John 14, the 17th verse. The Spirit of truth, the world cannot accept Him, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. It is not possible for a non-believer to accept the Holy Spirit's indwelling nor will the Holy Spirit accept that non-believer. Not until there is a change. He has to be made righteous in his inner being for God to dwell with him. But you know him, for he lives, what's that word say? With you. And he will be in you. In other words, the Holy Spirit could draw people, could be beside people, could be goading people, but his desire was to set up residence inside of the people. The Holy Spirit doesn't indwell lost people. He had drawn them to Jesus, but was not yet inside of them. Go to John 20. This would be John 20, verse 21. By the way, this is after Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay? <coughs> after He has been glorified. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. 
And with that, he breathed on them and said, what did he say? Receive the Holy Spirit. He's now glorified and he speaks to them, breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Look at this astounding statement that comes next. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Which one of you has the right to forgive sins apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Which one of you is qualified to be the judge of all mankind? Anybody in here? And yet, when the Holy Spirit indwells you, you know the thoughts of God. And He makes right judgments about all things, Corinthians says. So you can look at somebody and know whether their sin is forgiven if the Holy Spirit shows you. This seems to be what He's saying. Now, there's a parallel passage in Luke, and some commentators go, oh, see, he was just opening their mind to receive the Scripture. If that is the case, then why did he look at them and say, receive the Holy Spirit, and then talk about forgiveness of sins? Friends, could it be that now that they had believed on a resurrected, glorified Jesus, they received the Spirit, and this was the regenerating work that makes them Christians? I think that that's without any doubt what has happened. They are now believers with a measure or the presence of, or however you want to say it, the Holy Spirit present in their life. In other words, they're just like us. And yet, subsequent to that salvation experience, we find not just one or two, I'm going to show you a plethora. Y'all like that word, plethora? Where's my singles class? A plethora. We're going to show you a plethora of scriptures that show the Holy Spirit's empowerment, filling, and work subsequent to salvation. Now, people call this sometimes the doctrine of the second blessing, right? I, I want you to know, I did not go somewhere to find out what are all of the multiple choice boxes, available thoughts, so that I can cram the scripture into one of them. I didn't ever do that. My heart was simply, Lord, what does your scripture say? And later I found out that people put these things in boxes. For me, the Word of God is not a multiple-choice quiz that says, are you pre-, mid-, or post-rapture? I don't see it that way. In fact, I think we'd do a whole lot better to throw away our presumptions and start from scratch. So I'm not saying the doctrine of the second... I don't even know what all the nuances of it are, and I don't care. I simply know that the clear record in the book of Acts is something that we'll cover here. And by the way, we could call it the Acts of the Church. We could call it the Acts of the Apostles, but the Holy Spirit is the star of the book of Acts. And perhaps we could call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But whatever you call it, it is the historical record of how they understood the words of Jesus. It is the historical record of how the church acted in the first century. We have pastoral letters that correct things. We have gospels that tell us the story of Jesus. But the book of Acts tells us how they lived from day to day. Is that important? In other words, it tells us how they understood the words of Jesus. So in Acts 1, here comes verse 4. By the way, this is also after the resurrection. This is after he breathed on them. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. What do you mean? I thought that they were believers. I thought that they had received the Holy Spirit. They had. And yet, we are talking about some additional gift. But wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. 
For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He said this to the very same men that he had already said, He's with you and He will be in you. And he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So apparently we're not talking about simply checking a box off that goes, Holy Spirit, got it, good, let's go. He said there's something more, an immersion, a sprinkling, if you like, or a dunking in the power of the Holy Spirit. For John, uh, let's see. Um, he's saying this to people who had already received the word of John 20, 22. Look at this one. By the time we get to Acts 2, we have 120 people who are believers and identified as believers waiting in an upper room. They're doing such things as deciding who is going to take over the apostolic ministry that Judas left, right? If these guys aren't believers, then we have absolutely no hope because we are 50 days after the resurrection. We are 50 days past uh, Pesach or Passover, and this is the church as we know it. The church that was told receive the Holy Spirit, the church that was also told wait in Jerusalem. In Acts 2, starting in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. That word violent wind I tried to touch on for you a little bit Sunday. This harkens back to a Hebrew phrase, the breath of life. The breath of life is nashimachai. And it means for God to breathe is effortless, by the way. The word breathe is effortless for him. But the breath of life, what he breathes into you is a violent stirring. It's, it's a violent wind. This was intended to feel to them like a brand new empowerment of life. In any case, suddenly a sound like the blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be. It wasn't. It was not fire. It seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Who was filled with the Holy Spirit? Bible-believing uh, people who touched the resurrected Christ People who talked to the resurrected Christ were filled again. And this is the baptism that the Holy Ghost, the baptism of the Holy Ghost that he had spoken about. Look at Acts 8. This would be the third time that I'm showing you something that is subsequent to salvation and is a filling with the Holy Spirit. This is Acts 8.14. We're in Samaria. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had, what's that phrase? accepted the Word of God. Are we now going to say they're not believers? Come on, they accepted the Word of God. Are they believers? They sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Why would you do that? They're already believers. Didn't they know that all believers have the Holy Spirit? Well, of course they knew all believers had the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in their life, but apparently there was more. And they didn't want these guys to be without it. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. My, my, my. You mean that's possible? Apparently so. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Peter and John placed their hands on them. I wonder why. It's almost as if God is saying, 
These men are my ambassadors, and I'd like you to relate to them a certain way, and you're going to receive a gift through their hands that's not of them, it's of me. But I want you to understand that my anointing is upon them. Fourth time, subsequent to salvation. Uh, you need to back up one there. I'm sorry. Go forward once. Paul had seen Jesus. He had a vision of Ananias and was obedient to the Lord in Acts 9. Think about this. He saw Jesus. He asked who he is. Lord, who are you? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He was blinded, led by the hand to uh, a man's house. And when he... He goes to the man's house. He sees a vision of Ananias coming. Are we going to say Paul's not a believer? He's seen the resurrected Jesus, and he's had an additional vision of somebody coming to explain further to him. Are we going to say he's not a believer? And he was obedient to the Lord. He went where the Lord said. And the Lord's already called him a chosen instrument to carry the gospel. Are we going to say he's not a believer by those standards or any of us believers? Are you hearing me? It's in that condition, having already done those things, that in 9.17, Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He was already a believer. Why are we doing this? Apparently, even after believing, even after being baptized into the body of Christ, becoming a member of the body of Christ by drinking of the Spirit, apparently there is an additional empowerment. I sat one time with a, a friend in a church that I came out of, and he was very quick to point out, this never says he spoke in other tongues. Aren't you glad you have the rest of the Scripture, though? And by the way, I'm not even talking about speaking in other tongues. I'm simply talking about... An empowerment from on high. Something more than when you first get saved or just get saved. And maybe they can happen at the same time. We're going to see that in Acts 10. But it doesn't always. Cornelius, this is the fifth time I'm showing you. Cornelius was devout, God-fearing. Now, if you don't know about first century Judaism, if you don't know about the Hebraic roots of the faith, those words may not mean much to you. It may just mean he's a good guy. But devout and God-fearing are what Jews called Gentiles who were saved. They were proselytes. This is what Judaism called somebody who was a believer. Was he a believer? Well, he had seen a vision. An angel clearly appeared to him. And in the heavens, it was said that he had a memorial offering before God. How many unbelievers do you know that have seen visions of angels, had memorial offerings before God in the heavens, and the entire Jewish community considers them devout and God-fearing? I don't think you can call Cornelius an unbeliever. I mean, some do, but I, I cannot for the life of me figure out how they can read the first four verses of Acts 10 and come to that conclusion. So here comes Acts 10, 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. What an amazing thing. They were astonished because they could see something had happened. Before we get to that subject, let's move to the sixth time. By the way, how many doctrines are there that you cannot name six clear scriptures? Scriptures that are really beyond contestation to show. Has anybody in here ever tried to find the phrase, Jesus is God in the Bible? 
And yet none of us doubt it. The best you can come is a single verse in Romans that says Christ who is God over all. Every other time it's stated in a very Hebraic way. Things like, I who speak to you am he. Right? But to the skeptic, it didn't say Christ is God. And yet the spirit inside you witnesses he is God. You point to passages in Colossians and say the fullness of the deity lives in Christ in bodily form. Of course, the skeptic says that doesn't say Christ is God. Of course, it really does, doesn't it? We're looking at six times in a row in a single book where believers are receiving an additional experience with the Holy Ghost. I don't care whether you call it a second blessing, third, or a hundredth blessing. It makes no difference. I never intend to stop. Never. I hope I get this blessing every day, all day. I'm going to drink as much as can be drunk. At least, I don't know if drunk. You know what I mean. Here comes Acts 19, 1 through 7. There he found disciples. There he found what? Disciples. In Hebrew, this word is Talmudim, and it means a, a follower, an imitator. In, in Greek, it's disciplos, and it means one who is disciplined or trained by. There he found disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This is the same man that wrote Romans 8-9. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is Paul who wrote Romans 8-9. Do you think he's not aware that all Christians have the presence of the Holy Spirit? Do you think he's unaware? I don't think he's unaware, so why is he asking them? Apparently he's asking about something more than simply are they believers. Something more than simply is there a measure of the Spirit in you. Maybe he's asking them, have you been clothed with power from on high? Because you are definitely going to need it. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Good thing he asked. But I want to tell you, I've met believers all over the world that didn't understand those words, and yet he had drawn them into salvation, and they believed in Jesus. We, I prayed for more people in places like India that got the baptism in the Holy Ghost while I was praying for them, and then later we had to teach them what it was. Apparently, if you don't have serious roadblocks to it, it's easier to receive. So Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, even if they were just disciples before and not authentically believers. At this point, certainly the Apostle Paul is not baptizing them into the name of Jesus without them being believers. Can we agree on that? When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. Why did it take Paul placing his hands on them? Doesn't that sound like two distinct things? Why? Because apparently nobody had formulated this other doctrine that has crept into the church and robbed us from being empowered. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. It's amazing that everybody who seems just bent on teaching that you get all the Holy Spirit you'll ever have the day that you're born again, whether you saw it, felt it, whether anything happened or not, also just so happened to teach that tongues are not for today or for some rare special missionary group. Why would, could it be that these doctrines were created to justify their lack of an experience? F.F. Bruce was not charismatic. He was not Pentecostal. He was the general editor of the NIV Study Bible. An amazing learned man. He taught about Israel's history at the uh, collegiate level for years and years and years. And he had the most frank, 
a word in his uh, commentary on this subject. He said, the only way to explain Corinthians 13.8 is the cessation of the gifts is that the people who espouse this have never experienced them. And I want you to know, he had not experienced them. At least not as he stated. But he was at least intellectually honest about it. He simply said there was no justification for thinking that these things were not there all over the word. It is there. Perhaps it's our experience that's made us think this way. Look. If I hadn't experienced these, I'd be right there arguing with you too. I mean, I really would. But having experienced it, there's no going back for me. Uh, and I want to tell you, I never received persecution like I got when I got baptized in the Holy Ghost. Never. Falling head over heels in love with Jesus didn't offend everybody as much as being moved by His Spirit to do things that some people didn't do. And suddenly... The same people that found me perfectly acceptable when I was a backslidden or lukewarm or maybe not even born again didn't find me acceptable because I did things without knowing they were associated with a Pentecostal movement like raise my hands because we simply don't do that. Well, nobody told me to do it either. It just kind of felt right to do. It was much later when I found out it was all over the Word. The Apostle Paul actually commands us to raise our hands. Having said that, I'm not here with an axe to grind. I can pick on any of those denominations, and I don't want to. I simply want to experience the authentic work of God. I want to talk to you about seeing and heard. Seeing and heard because in lots of circles, I was a young man, I was Lutheran. I, I want to confess to you, I didn't get confirmed. I was not a Christian, and it just so happens that I got in a fist fight uh, the day of confirmation and rolled out on the stage, and... Uh, they didn't want to confirm me after that, Charlie. Uh, I'm thankful to the Lutheran Church. They taught me the Apostles' Creed. They taught me about some of the great histories of our faith. They ingrained in me from an early age, sola scriptura, will be led by the scripture alone. I moved on from there into a Baptist circle because that's where my parents were. And they really taught me to revere the Word of God. They taught me the basics of salvation by grace as an act of faith. that It, it was not by works. And I am so, so thankful from that. I had a brief stand in a vineyard church. I didn't know what it was. I just knew that now that Jesus Christ had spoken to me audibly, people were uncomfortable in the Baptist church with me. I was not uncomfortable with them, but they were uncomfortable with me. And I was looking for anybody who believed this was possible because it had happened to me. And I spent some time there and God introduced me to some other men who were not associated with any denomination. I'm so thankful for it. But each step along the way was an important one in my life that added something. I've said all that to say, in all my time in the Lutheran Church, in all my time in the Baptist Church, and in most of my time in the Vineyard Church who believes in a second blessing, I never saw anything when people said they received the Holy Spirit. I saw a priest wave his fingers in a certain way. I saw a kid eat a cracker. I saw all kinds of things, but I never saw anything in the person that let me know he received the Holy Spirit. I want to start in Acts 2 and show you that something was always seen, something was always heard. Here comes Acts 2, the second verse. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. <laughs> Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Does it sound like the Spirit forced them to speak? 
It doesn't sound like the hand of God came down upon their mouth and moved it up and down. It sounds simply like they spoke as were enabled by the Spirit. It's almost as if, just like salvation, there is a step of faith that has to be taken. Somebody has to begin to speak. In some circles, this is picked on. It's called coaching, right? Let me ask you, if you see somebody at the altar who was a prostitute, and that prostitute is trying to get her life right, and she has begun to change her clothes, she's begun to do all kinds of things, including church attendance, are you really never going to lead her in salvation prayer? Are you really never going to tell her anything that would help her? You would simply say, if it's authentic and God wants it to happen, it'll happen, let's all keep away. Are you really going to do that? But when we talk about an empowerment from the Holy Spirit, to, to lean over and tell somebody what your experience was is somehow frowned upon as coaching. I don't understand that. I don't even know why that is birthed in people's hearts other than there are charismatics, Pentecostals, and lots of other weirdos that may try to get you to do all kinds of things. But look, we have idiots that handle snakes in the Appalachian Mountains. We have people who will stand flat-footed and say the Old Testament doesn't exist and shouldn't exist. We have every variety of fr fruit, nut, and flake associated with Jesus. Are we really going to be bound by what these people do? I simply want what the Word says. And sometimes in the Word, nobody touched them, nobody spoke to them, it happened. Other times, men of God were sent from other places to put their hands on them and presumably tell them, you're about to receive the Holy Spirit. This may be what's going to happen. But that is a presumption, I admit. If that seems like too far of a stretch for anybody, then I'll allow you to just disregard that statement. But let us read the rest of the Word. Is that fair enough? Let's go to the second one of seen and heard. This comes from Acts 8. We're back in Samaria again. The 17th verse. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. How do we know? Because verse 18 says, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. In the Episcopalian movement, when, when they say receive the Spirit and they make a sign of the cross and the confirmed receives the Spirit supposedly, in the Lutheran uh, tradition, in the Catholic tradition, when those things happen, I have never seen somebody stand up and say, I'd like to buy the ability to do that. Mm. You know, how does, it, how does it go? Spectacles. No, I can't say that. Huh? We start at the top, move to the bottom, then the left, then the right to make the sign of the cross. Right? Can I buy the ability to do that? Something more than that is happening here, friends. Something that Simon the sorcerer Right? Somebody who was acquainted with the wrong kind of spiritual power. Something he was so impressed with, he wanted to buy. Let me ask you, does the average Christian that you know outside of this experience, when they get born again and they receive the Spirit, is it the kind of thing that fortune tellers, magicians come and say, I want to buy what I just saw happen when you got the Holy Ghost? But it was in the first century. Well, maybe it was just a special dispensation, right? Maybe miracles happened back then, but they don't happen now. If that's the case, what were they saying back then? Because at some point, it was just regular life. Are you hearing me? Do you really believe that God is not the same yesterday, today, and forever? Do you really believe that He changes His mind? And that because an attorney broke up the uh, the the 
centuries of history into seven segmentations that God buys into that? I personally believe that we have one God who's moved upon mankind in a similar way throughout history. He's moved by faith. You can't have faith in something you've never heard. You can't expect to swim if you were never near the water and didn't believe it existed. This is where most of us are. We've simply been taught this stuff doesn't exist. Most churches that I grew up in were cessationist. They didn't believe it existed. And then when you found the rare one that was not a cessationist, they simply said, it's rare, it's far off, it's anywhere but here, don't expect to see it. So by the way, if I do, if I do experience it, am I still welcome in your congregation? Of course not. We are, and then you get the title. What about this record in the Word? You could see it and hear it. Let's move to the next scripture. This is Acts 10, 45-47. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized in water? They have received the Holy Spirit. What's that say? Just as we have. Now maybe we're just talking about the men who came with Peter. So we still have a select special missionary group. I don't think so though, and I will show you that later. This was the third time, by the way, that you could see uh, and hear something happen that lets you know they had been filled with the Holy Ghost. Let's go to the fourth time. Acts 19.6. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Something happened when this empowerment occurred. Why don't we look at this last slide on the subject. This is not seen and heard. This has to do whether this is normative or bizarre. Is this something that is relegated to the fringe of Christianity for a select group of weirdos? Or is this something that was mainstream Christianity? Something that was intended for all believers to experience? Acts 11.15, I added two words that are in italics. No one should be tricked by the parentheses with the giant italic words in it. This is not Eric adding to the scripture. I did this to help you with an interpretation. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them. The them here is Gentiles. Every Gentile believer in the world at the time. Every Gentile Christian at the time. The Holy Spirit came on them as He had come on us at the beginning. This is Peter standing before the church in Jerusalem. Every believer in Jesus, every single one in Jerusalem, Peter is responsible for with James. And he is accounting to them for his actions. And he says the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come upon us. If that's not normative Christianity, I don't know what is. He is quite literally saying, whether a Jew in Jerusalem or a Gentile out in Antioch, we are experiencing the same thing. Look at verse 16. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Does it matter to you that Peter applies the baptism of the Holy Ghost, that phrase, to these events? Surely that tells us what Jesus meant, or I'm sorry, what John the Baptist meant with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them, what's it say? The same gift as He gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I to think I could oppose God? I'm, I'm not going to be so sarcastic as to tell you what title you could put there. 
I simply want to say, they received the same thing, whether Jew or Gentile. And he called it the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's what he referred to it. So is it unscriptural to say subsequent to salvation? We believe that you can be immersed in God's power in a new way? Look, you can disagree with me, and that's okay. I'm not here to win an argument, but I've experienced it. And I believe that you can experience it. I'm not requiring of you. Did anybody have, have a deacon at the door today? He's putting out a cigarette and standing in front of the door telling you you cannot enter unless you demonstrate something? Did anybody experience that? Has anybody walked up, tapped you on the shoulder and said, <clears throat> friend, I don't think you're going to be comfortable here. In the history of our church, if that ever happens, I will break that deacon's leg. I won't do that. <laughs> In the history of our church, if that ever happens, you will see public repentance rather than public sin. Right? But let me ask you, just think for a moment of a couple denominational circles. And Charlie prophesies in tongues on a Sunday morning. Do you think somebody might tell him that that's not appropriate here? Do you think somebody might tell him, perhaps you're looking for a church down the road? Hmm? I just got to tell you, then when we talk about this issue being divisive, when we talk about, oh, well, all of that stuff is just divisive. No, no, it, it is not our group that is making that divisive. I didn't ask to get the left foot of fellowship. I didn't ask to not be accepted by my brothers and sisters in the kingdom. I simply experienced something of Jesus that their doctrine says cannot occur, but the word endorses. And you know what? That's been the experience of believers around the world. Let us move on from that to something more positive. Is that okay? Can we get a little more positive? Goodness gracious, it's almost 9 o'clock. I'm going to take a few excerpts from Corinthians 14. Obviously, no matter what I read here, there are going to be some that go, you know, he didn't read such and such. He left out that on purpose. I, I can't get any more open than to tell you, stop by my house any time of the day or night. Stay after service, come before service. You approach me with any question, I won't duck a single question. And I don't need notes to do it. I don't need computer programs to do it. This is my heart and my life. This is not a prepared, uh, a carefully uh, teleprompted kind of thing. This is my experience. I'm not teaching you about something that I read in a book somewhere. I'm teaching you about what God has done in my life. This comes from Corinthians 14, verse 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. I guess he didn't know they were going to cease, huh? Of course, it's the, the chapter before this that people say it ceased him. The same one where he says tongues will be ceased and knowledge will pass away. Some interpretations make you wonder, don't they? Especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. When, when Spence speaks to God in English, what do we call that? This is where you get the phrase praying in tongues. Praying in tongues to be distinguished from prophesying in tongues. When we speak to God, does God need an interpreter? Is there any language that God doesn't understand? But if we speak to men, what do we need? Oh, okay, I was just curious. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to, their, speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Is it bad to be edified? Is there anybody here who does not want to be built up in your most holy faith? But he who prophesies edifies the church. The fact that speaking in a known language edifies the church, does that mean praying in an unknown language is somehow bad? 
He said it edifies you. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather you prophesy. I don't have time to put the book of Corinthians in its proper context, but they wrote to Paul with questions. And he says, now about the spiritual gifts, now about lawsuits among believers, now about, he is answering their questions. Sometimes we, it's like Jeopardy, right? In Jeopardy, they give you an answer and you have to name the question, right? You say, what is, you know? Shut up, Alex Trebek. So where we're at with this is we are reading Paul's answers to their questions, but we don't always know what the questions are. Apparently, they were concerned about order in the service. Verse uh, 12, how about that? Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. Is that bad advice? But he's not, he's, he's not excluding gifts that build you up. He's saying, if you want to excel in something, excel in what builds your brother up. Verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Does that tell you that it's perfectly uh, crafted intellectual thought? Somehow or another, prayer in the Spirit seems to bypass your mind. I didn't say that. Paul did. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. People who have tried to relegate this to something other than a tongue's experience have Paul as some kind of strange schizophrenic. Guys, he sang in the Spirit. He prayed in the Spirit. It didn't keep him from singing in English and praying in English. One of the things that I find with young, zealous uh, people who have experienced this is sometimes they're so excited about their new gifting and their new ability and they've come to rely on it so heavenly that, that you have to go, hey friend, I also would like to hear you say something I understand. We're going to pray together for an hour. Could you, could you say something that I can give a legitimate amen to? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Look at verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Of course, he would not be welcome in many mainstream denominational churches, even though he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, simply because he speaks in other tongues. There are universities that he could not go to unless he denied this experience. How do we come to a place where that is the case? Here comes 1 Corinthians 14, 26, and it's the last I have to say on that subject. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. What if they're not done? Church isn't strengthened properly. Why do you think the devil works so hard against these things? Well, praying in the Spirit edifies you. Prophesying edifies the church. Does the devil want you edified? Does he want the church edified? Is he looking to face the strongest church possible? Probably not. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father who is above, and the devil will work to steal it. Luke eleven thirteen tells us if we are evil and know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? But what the devil has managed to do is to trick us into believing that even if there's no outward evidence of any kind, we must have all that we can get because Romans 8 9 says, otherwise we don't belong to Jesus. And we dispute scriptures like Mark 16 that say these signs will follow. We even put notes, I'm not sure this should be in the canon. Of course, it's been in the canon in all of these centuries. You know, if that part is suspect, what's it say about the rest? 
Now, this is uh, maybe slightly apologetic in, in the technical sense of the word, but that's not my heart, not to win an argument. I'm trying to explain to you why we do some of the things we do. I do not have some merit badge that I'm getting checks from Springfield, Missouri for every person who identifies with Pentecostal or Charismatic Christianity. I am the first one to say, I think much of what is going on in the Charismatic world is ridiculously off base. Uh, I'm uncomfortable with it. I'm actually much, much more comfortable with guys like Paul Washer, with, with guys like David Platt. Unfortunately, not having met them personally, just the experience that I've had in their denomination, they may not be comfortable with me. Now, where does that leave us? Should we be some pariah in the kingdom, some strange group that just has to go uh, live out in the woods? No, this is normative in the first century. The fact that it hasn't been normative since then is a sad testament to the lack of good teaching, from the lack of courage, the lack of, where's Michael, chutzpah, that says, I want all there is of God no matter what people say. That's, these things must be done. What you are not hearing me say is that you must do anything. Whatever you're hungry for from the Lord, He'll meet you in that hunger. My job as a pastor is to challenge you. My job as a pastor is to want good things for you. My job as a pastor is to equip you for works of service. And some things I can do and some I can't. I cannot baptize you in the Holy Ghost. I can't do it. Jesus is the baptizer of the Holy Ghost. Cannot do it. But what I can do is tell you what happened to me. I can tell you what I see in the Word and hope that the Holy Spirit moves on you to have a hunger for this, that on whatever your own terms are, as long as it is scriptural, you're seeking more of the Lord. I can tell you that I will not allow a church environment where Christians are graded based on their experience with the gifts. I won't allow it. I've suffered from that environment. My own wife was told that if she didn't speak another tongue, she wasn't a Christian. She was told that by a well-meaning person, and it happened to be the biggest stumbling block to her receiving that gift. Many years later, without all of that pressure, without all of that public scrutiny, she received that gift, and I am so glad it saved my life more times than I can count. None of us should be in a position of looking at anyone else and thinking that they're inferior. I have lots to say about maturity and gifts, but let me just say this. No gift indicates maturity. None. It indicates the greatness of God. Let's go to the last slide, and we'll close. Here are some other topics that I could not cover tonight, and these are not because I'm scared of them, not because I'm avoiding them. This is not, oh, you know what the pastor didn't talk about. He, guys, we only have so much time on a given evening. Interpretation. You hear constantly, tongues must be interpreted. It ignores the context of the letter that was written. It ignores the questions that were asked to Paul that he was answering. God needs no interpretation of prayer. But if you speak to men, it needs to be interpreted. I will teach on that subject at some point in the near, near future. This has to do with the difference between prayer in tongues and prophecy in tongues. I'd like to teach you about the synonyms for prayer in tongues. Sometimes in places like Ephesians 6 and Jude 1.20, it's simply called prayer on the Holy Spirit. Said, well, that's just anointed prayer. You mean to tell me that you can pray and, and it authentically be commu communication with God and it not be of the Holy Ghost? That's a problem. I'd like to talk to you about personal edification versus mutual edification. As Christians, we're not selfish. So we eagerly desire whatever would, would build up our brothers, gifts that build them up, not just ourselves. 
course, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be personally edified. I'd like to talk to you about all nine gifts of the Spirit, not unduly emphasize one. I'd like to talk to you about the way of love and the gifts. Often people have said, oh, well, let's just love and it'll all be... The same God who is a God of love gave us these gifts because He loves us. I'd like to talk to you about, does every believer have every gift? Of course not. But if we have the Spirit, any gift is possible. Why would you want to limit Him? Hmm? I'd like to talk to you about a maturity and more specifically the lack thereof as it relates to gifts. The Proverbs teach us that if you have an oxen, you have an abundant harvest. Isn't that awesome? Of course, also says you have to shovel a stone. When you believe in supernatural experience, you can have an abundant harvest. It's amazing. But sometimes you're going to have experiences that are not so supernatural. They're just weirdos who are trying, right? And I've been a weirdo. I mean, there, we've all stepped out and done something that was not perfectly scriptural because we didn't know any better. That's what it means to grow up in your salvation. At least they were trying. You really think it's more holy to sit on your salvation, cross your arms, stand back and say, if God wants something to happen to me, He'll make it happen while you do nothing? I don't think that's godly. I'm, I'm encouraging you to strive. I'm encouraging you to strive. Some of you prophesy, some don't. Some of you speak in tongues, some don't. Some raise your hands and worship, some don't. Some dance, some don't. Some run, some don't. We have never stood and said, you must do anything. Instead, we do our best to embrace God in every way that we know how and hope you're encouraged by it. Look, I think the whole church knows I have trouble clapping in beef. I'm one of those guys that I have to watch. And if you're behind me with the little popcorn clap, I, I really have to tune you out. It, it's hard for me, right? I also have trouble dancing. It's something I really, really have to let go of myself and just focus on the Lord to do. But when Miss Sharon, our teacher, dances, it helps me. I find that it spurs my faith on to be around people who are experiencing God in every possible way a whole lot more than simply finding people who have never experienced God in any way other than what I've neatly experienced and agree not to challenge each other. I find one bold and the other lacking. Let us stand in prayer. I hope, friends, that I have not hurt your feelings. But I would like to also tell you that everything I've ever learned in my life came from being challenged enough to hurt my feelings. Right? We're so sure of what we don't know. <laughs> you know, the true test of any doctrine is that it can be tested. Right? It should show up in our experience. It should be demonstrable in multiple places in the work. I've tried to show you that tonight. If we didn't get there, I'd be happy to meet with any of you. I don't want to make spectacle or sport of any person. But I experienced something that was so good, it's very hard for me to act like it's not important or not to desire it for you. If one of you could fly, I would hope you would want to teach me how. Right? I mean, I really would. And if I couldn't, then I hope you would accept me anyway. But I just think we ought to stretch for all we can stretch for. Because I don't think God loves me so much that He'd give me something He wouldn't give you. I just don't. But we'll teach that on another night. Y'all join hands of the people around you.